Welcome to your weekly update on all things tax. The Tax Factor from Blick Rothenberg. With Heather Sell and Robert Salter. I'm Heather Self. Welcome to The Tax Factor, the weekly podcast from Blick Rothenberg. Each week, our team looks at the news and updates in the world of tax and provides an analysis of what it might mean for you and your business. It's episode 13 today, just in time for Halloween. Hopefully it's not going to be unlucky, so grab a coffee and a tax-compliant biscuit. We'll explain that in a minute. Joining me again today is Robert Salter, a tax director at Blick Rothenberg, who writes for many publications about tax and finance matters. Welcome back, Robert. Hello, thank you. So let's start this week by looking at some recent tax cases. There was a really good one about chocolate biscuits, or rather biscuits which might be wholly or partially covered in chocolate. You'll all remember the Jaffa Cakes case. A Jaffa Cake is a cake, not a biscuit. So that wasn't subject to VAT. But what about other biscuits? Robert, I think you're thinking about having a board biscuit today? I'm very much fancying a bourbon biscuit today, just as a matter of tax saving as much as anything. So basically where the chocolate is integral to the biscuit, so it's covered wholly within the biscuit, it's a VAT exempt item. Whereas if you have the covering with chocolate or partially covering with chocolate, you then get caught by VAT, which is slightly quirky, I would suggest from a kind of an overall perspective, because it's still just as tasty and delicious, but that's VAT law for you. There's a lot of quirks in VAT. This is about McVitie's Blissful Biscuits, which for those of you who haven't tried them, have got chocolate cream in the middle and then a biscuit top and bottom. So far, so good. The trouble was that the lid didn't completely cover the chocolate cream, so the tribunal held that this biscuit was partially covered in chocolate and so subject to VAT. If you want to have a look online on HMRC's manuals, there's a whole list of things that do or do not qualify for zero rating. Gingerbread men, zero rated provided they haven't got too much chocolate on them. Chocolate body paint, zero rated. So there we go. Turning to a perhaps more sensible tax case, Robert, we had a case on whether the sale of a house qualified for exemption from capital gain. Who won on that one? On this one, the taxpayer won. So it was basically to do with principal principal private residence relief and when it applies. It's a classic issue when you have it in a lot of exam questions, for example, and things like that. Where does PPR apply? In this case, the revenue held that the position taken by the taxpayers was correct, and that basically saved them potentially for £540,000 of tax. In that context, it was quite a you know, big case for a one-off situation that you don't think necessarily applies, but actually applies in many cases. So it's something that, you know, if you're developing your own property or something like that, you could be in a similar situation. So it is relevant for other people out there. Thanks, Robert. The final case is one where the Supreme Court judgment only came out just a couple of hours before we started recording this week. It's the Supreme Court, so it's the highest court in the land. So it is an important decision. And it's about employment-related securities, which is going to be relevant to a lot of entrepreneurs. If you'll forgive the fact that we haven't had time to digest this fully, and I suspect there are going to be lots of chocolate biscuits eaten while people work through this case very carefully, this is a really important case. So to start with the background, This was a venture capital situation where a software company called Vermilion Software was incorporated to make a software product for the fund management sector. They got funding from various people, including a company called Quest, which was a company owned by a Mr. Noble and somebody else. So Vermilion got investment from Quest and Quest got some share options in this. Things didn't go too well and a rescue was needed. And so there were some changes to the share options. There was 
an option agreement between Vermilion and Quest, which then got changed so that Mr Noble himself became the holder of that 2007 option. He sold his shares in 2016 and he claimed that that was subject to capital gains tax. So very briefly, we've got somebody who at the time the option was originally granted was not an employee of the business, but by the time he came to exercise the option, he was a director. And the question was whether this was an employment-related security. In other words, whether it was given to him by reason of his employment. Now, you might think that's quite a simple question, but I think we've had at least eight judges looking at this, and I think the score's probably about four all. But given that the last judgment was the Supreme Court, they have all decided that Mr Noble should pay income tax and not capital gains tax on this option. Robert, anything you want to add to this? It's a very common situation, isn't it? I would certainly say from a common sense perspective, it makes sense. And if you look at the logic behind the judgment, it talks about, did your employer give you these shares? Even if there were some other factors involved, it's automatically perceived to be a deemed employee share ownership situation or share option situation. So I think from a common sense perspective, it makes sense. And obviously, from a tax perspective, it's going to be much more expensive for the individual and for the company, because now you're going to have employers NIC, for example, due at 13.8%, which wouldn't have been the case if this had been a pure capital gains event. Obviously, HMRC are fairly happy with the decision. I think from an overall principles and logic perspective, it makes sense. And there are similar situations out there where people get shares via their employer and not necessarily directly from a common sense perspective because of employment, but because because of via their employer. And it clarifies that situation, I think, for those scenarios too, where it's going to be, no, this is binding law, it's a Supreme Court judgment. If you're getting it from your employer, even slightly indirectly, you're still going to have that deemed employee share option tax liability. And I think it's notable that this is a Supreme Court overturning a court of appeal decision, which doesn't happen all that often. And As you say, it is the Supreme Court and therefore this is the law of the land. And it's interesting how when you read a Supreme Court judgment, you think, yes, of course, that's the answer. But that's not what everybody thought before this judgment came out. The key thing is this provision which says that, and I'm quoting now, this is Section 471 of Part 7 of ITPA, the Income Tax and Employment Provisions Act. Have I got that right, Robert? Employment and Pensions, I think, Act. But yes, it's still ITEPA for sure short because it's a lot easier. (laughs) So this says a right or opportunity to acquire a securities option made available by a person's employer or a person connected with a person's employer is to be regarded for the purposes of subsection one as available by reason of an employment unless a couple of minor exceptions. So the Supreme Court focused on that and said the simple question is did this individual get this option from his employer and ultimately he did and therefore it was regarded as an employment-related security and subject to income tax. The lower courts, I think, focus much more on the question of whether it was given by reason of the employment, because actually the options were originally granted at a time when Mr Noble wasn't an employee of Vermilion. They were granted to somebody in their capacity as an investor, and it's quite common for investors to get shares in the companies they're supporting. Almost certainly, these options were not originally 
employment-related securities, but because there was a change to them, and that change happened at a time when Mr Noble was an employee, they became employment-related securities. As Paul says, that means a lot more tax, not just for Mr Noble, but also for his employer and national insurance. And I think this is one that entrepreneurs need to look at very carefully, because it's very common for entrepreneurs to have share options. If you haven't checked in detail whether the employment-related securities rules apply, that's certainly something to have a close look at. And that comes with lots more reporting obligations and potentially an exposure if you don't do the correct reporting and things like that. So that's something that employers, I think, going forward are going to have to be very au fait with and on top of because otherwise it could be a big tax bill just waiting to happen. And those sort of tax bills can, you know, if you're looking at some sort of trade arrangement or something like that to kind of sell the company in due course, can make all the difference to what price you can get and whether you can sell the company. Yeah, so that's a a really employment case. So we've gone not from the sublime to the ridiculous, but from the ridiculous to the supreme. (laughs) Turning now to topics that have been in the newspapers this week, again, we've got a slew of potential predictions for what we might see in the budget or after the budget. What what have you heard about, Robert? Well, I've heard, you know, potentially some jam tomorrow situations about, for example, updating the IHT regulations, which obviously a lot of the Conservative press have been keen to kind of see it either massively improved in terms of the thresholds and everything or totally removed. But there's also been one or two things about things like the 40% tax ban, when should that apply for and things like that. So there's lots of things. But if you then only look back two or three weeks ago, people were suggesting at that stage, the government had no money available for tax cuts or anything like that. So if they do announce them either in the autumn statement or in the spring budget, I think it's going to be a long term kind of plan, not a quick win for anybody. The other one that I've heard is about fuel duty and whether we might get a rise in fuel duty to pay for some of the other things the government would like to spend money on. Uh, It's about 11 years since fuel duty last went up. I think it was Gordon Brown who had a policy of raising it by more than inflation every year, but it's not actually gone up at all. That's doing two things, really. Firstly, it's meaning the government's collecting quite significantly less than it would otherwise do. But it also means that the predictions from the Office of Budget Responsibility are bound to be wrong because they have to assume it's going to go up by inflation and yet we all know it's not going to happen. Obviously from a kind of a wider planning perspective it's nonsense and let's be honest I think everybody would appreciate government being honest and clear with what's really going to happen and what they're really going to do. You either have a policy and it's X and you follow it through or you just kind of update the guidelines and say we're not increasing fuel duty forever. I think the wider issue here though is let's be honest over the next five or ten years there's 25 or 26 billion pound which the government gets from fuel duty each year which they're going to start losing significantly with the move to electric cars, hybrid cars etc and it's going to be interesting to see how they can what other taxes they can introduce to kind of start covering that lost revenue because that's going to be a big change it's going to impact a lot of people and it's going to be significant from a noise perspective whenever it does happen. Definitely a watch this space on that one. The other item that's been mentioned again is the the freezing of rate bans. And I think we talked about that last time you were on, Robert, that it's, it's a really significant tax rise for most people. But it's very much a hidden tax rise. If you've got somebody who's on around 50 or 60,000 a year, so towards the top of the basic rate band, and they get a pay rise of £6,000, they might be thinking that they're going to get about £400 a month after tax, i.e. they're just going to pay 20% tax on it. But of course, if they've gone into the 40% band, they'll only get £300 a month. Yes, I am ignoring national insurance for simplicity. So a pay rise is going to be a lot less than you thought it was because of this freezing of the rate bands. And at that level, Robert, something else that's nasty could come along and hit you. Yes. So basically, those people earning between 50 and £60,000, if they are you know, in a family with children, for example, and they're claiming child benefit or well, those partners claiming child benefit, they're going to, in effect, have the child benefit clawback or officially the higher income child benefits charge 
And that can, you know, if you've got three children, for example, that actually makes your effective tax rate 71% with the clawback included, which is nasty. Horrific. I think it's the only way to describe it. And we are seeing these higher tax receipts flowing through in the statistics for HMRC. The, the figures for September came out this week, and they're showing that income tax has gone up by 15% this year, whereas average pay growth is about 7%. This fiscal drag, the freezing of the rate bounds, is really pulling people into higher rates of tax. We're also seeing on corporate tax, again, the receipts are up quite significantly, and that's the rise in corporation tax from April starting to feed through into government receipts. So the government is collecting quite a lot of money on tax. And finally, a a useful uh, message from HMRC this week. Please look out for scams. HMRC will not suggest that you should pay your tax by buying iTunes gift vouchers, which is apparently what the scammers suggest. But there are some more sophisticated emails and text messages to watch out for. There was also the useful message that if you've been sent an email or request to fill in a tax return for last year, that's the year to the 5th of April 2023, then if you don't need to do one for whatever reason, tell HMRC well before the 31st of January next year, otherwise you are going to be liable for penalties. And Robert, I think you can sometimes appeal against the penalties, but it's a lot of hassle. Absolutely. Whilst you can sometimes get the revenue to agree to waive penalties, cancel the filing requirement, etc. next year, so after the deadline, it's very much a hit and miss affair and it takes a lot of efforts you know you may get lucky with the inspector or the official you speak to you may not and there's no legal requirement on them to cancel that filing requirement or cancel the penalties and things like that so in the worst case you could end up still having to file your tax return even if you had no income to report and have penalties so you actually have a liability at the end of the day basically it's one of those situations where if you take you know five minutes now can save a lot of pain further down the line so stitch in time saves nine My thanks to Robert for joining me on this week's Tax Factor. We'd also like to hear from you. If you visit the Tax Factor page on our website, you'll find a form to contact us. Let us know the stories and topics that you'd like us to cover. We record the podcast on a Wednesday, so you can message us right up to the time we record, although I'm sorry, but we can't give individual advice or responses to messages. You can hear all the previous episodes of The Tax Factor on the Blick Rothenberg website. We release a new episode every Friday on all major podcast platforms. You can also find all our episodes on YouTube. I'm Heather Self. Goodbye. That's all for this episode of The Tax Factor. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try Brave Business, our podcast series for entrepreneurs. Find it wherever you get the tax factor or on the Blick Rothenberg website. The Tax Factor.